listen. The world is talking. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. As everyone knows, without even having to read pop psychology books about Mars and Venus, men and women in our culture today frequently look at things differently. What about in the 1860s? What were the roles that society assigned to men and women in peace and in war? How did they differ in the North and in the South? And what effect did this have on the war and the way we remember the war today? To find out, we'll talk this hour with Professor Nina Silber, author of Gender and the Sectional Conflict on Civil War Talk Radio. Hotline. Please, my daughter, I think she might hurt herself. Okay, ma'am. Her arms and legs are moving in all different directions. Yeah. Ma'am, is that music I hear? Yeah, I put on the radio and then she just lost control. Ma'am, she might be trying to dance. What? Dancing, ma'am. No, 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 I've seen dancing and that's not it. The less art kids get, the more it shows. Please visit us at americansforthearts.org. Art. Ask for more. A public service message brought to you by Americans for the Arts and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this week, once again from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University on a beautiful early April afternoon in 2009. The uh, show comes to you from the campus, but it's not brought to you by East Carolina, and the college has its own ideas and uh, thoughts and takes no responsibility for what I'm saying, nor do I. I don't speak for the university and vice versa. same will be true of our guest who will present her own views uh, without question today. So legal things out of the way. Uh, we move forward with the usual housekeeping. Thanks, as always, to those who have uh, generously contributed to the show's book fund to keep me in new reading material uh, and new ideas for people to talk to on the show. If you're interested in contributing, uh, you can use the uh, PayPal address civilwartr at aol.com. If you do contribute and request it, uh, if you send, uh, let's say, $20 or more, uh, ask for a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln. And I'll be happy to send you the new paperback edition of that. Uh, likewise, for the same $20, if you'd prefer a, a hardcover uh, first edition of All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio, 1861-62, uh, I've got some of those in the back room and be happy to send you one of those uh, and can autograph either one if you like for a Christmas present for the mail person or whatever you might want. Uh, so uh, donations always welcome. Suggestions for future shows are also welcome. Please let me know if you've read something interesting or have an idea for a topic that you'd like to uh, have discussed. Uh, send it on in. Also, uh, take a look uh, at the uh, gradually developing uh, auxiliary website for the show, cwtr.org. Uh, there, uh, uh, thanks to Bob, a friend of the show who put that up. I appreciate his services there. 
The show itself has a new website. If you are listening to this and you've already found it, uh, and deserve congratulations because it's not easy to get to. Um, but once you're there, it's uh, certainly improved over the previous version, and uh, we're glad you're here. Before going further, a note of apology to listeners for uh, the glitches in last week's show and an apology to my guest, uh, George Skoke, uh, Civil War cartographer. Uh, George uh, had written to me about his work, and we got to conversing, and I invited him to be on the show. And uh, He really let on uh, not that much before we talked, but during the show more and more, it turned out he has done maps for just about everybody in the field, anyone you care to name, uh, Sears and Gallagher and uh, uh, Cousins and anyone who's written a a Civil War campaign book. uh, His maps are probably in it. Uh, The story's got more and more interesting, but we were cut off a couple times by technical glitches, first ones in the five-year history of the show. So I apologize to him and to listeners who missed anything this week. We anticipate a smooth and flawless uh, presentation. And uh, finally, before we dive in the uh, regular recitation of the schedule, if you'd like to uh, stop by and say hello, uh, where when I'm out on the road talking about uh, did Lincoln own slaves or the Army of the Ohio or any other topic, uh, please do so. Uh, the schedule currently uh, has talks at Leesburg, Virginia, for the Loudoun County Civil War Roundtable, April 14th, uh, Harvard University in Cambridge on April 25th, part of a uh, big program, May 5th, Doylestown, Pennsylvania, the Bucks County Civil War Roundtable, May 12th, the Richmond, Virginia Civil War Roundtable, May 16th, the Filson Historical Society in Louisville is having a uh, Lincoln uh, weekend, and there will be some very good uh, presenters there, and I will be also giving a talk on Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, a military uh, subject, so I hope to see some of you there. And then in October, uh, right here nearby Rocky Mount, North Carolina, on October 22nd, I'll be talking to a group there. So today, uh, however, we talk not about uh, Lincoln, but uh, move to a a new topic and a new guest. Uh, I'm happy to welcome to the show uh, Dr. Nina Silber. Uh, are you there, Dr. Silber? I am here. Hi. <laughs> I appreciate you being on the show. Do you mind if I call you uh, Nina? Is that appropriate? I don't know. That's perfectly fine. And please call me Jerry. Okay. Um, well, I'm, I'm very glad to have you on. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, reading your book, Gender and Sectional Conflict, uh, and your name appears, of course, in lots of other books, uh, essays, uh, collections, things that you've written. Um, but let's start with a little bit about your background. Uh, okay. the, Civil, the Civil War seems the main focus of, of your work. Uh, how did you get interested in the subject? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, I can't claim that I have uh, ancestors who fought anywhere, or uh, I'm you know, really from a family of immigrants uh, who came after the Civil War period. But um, it's interesting. My my father was always somebody who uh, was historically minded, and you know, I guess I'm one of those kids who was taken on long car trips where we'd stop and <laughs> look at historical sites, and that included the Civil War. But um, but he was also very interested in uh, folklore and folk music, and uh, in fact, 
did, I think, what many people still consider to be one of the best collections of Civil War music. It's called the Civil War Songbook, um, and his name is Erwin Silber. And, you know, so he was always, I, I, maybe, I'm trying to remember if he was always whistling, uh, marching through Georgia as we drove on those car trips. Uh, but, you know, he, uh, I suppose, got me interested in this, in this subject. Wow. Now, you know, I was thinking your name was familiar, not just from your own work. Um, now, you teach at... Uh, I teach at Boston, Boston University, but I am no relation to uh, John Silber, who used to be the president of Boston University. He isn't any longer. Uh, I know there's sometimes that generates confusion. That uh, I lived in Massachusetts when he ran for governor, uh, and I, I recall... Um, uh, the president at the time, Silber, had some rather eccentric ideas. Yeah, yeah, he had some eccentric ideas uh, in terms of running for governor and also in terms of running Boston University. But yes, that's true. So, uh, but no relation. But but Erwin uh, Silver, you said was your father. Right, right. And that that is a familiar name. The 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 Civil War songbook I'm definitely familiar with. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, he uh, has, I suppose, passed that interest down to me. Wow. So now you you teach at BU. Is this um, is the Civil War the focus of your uh, teaching? Do you get to do the uh, survey courses too? Uh, what, what's your program like? I uh, I taught the survey course a few times. Um, I now what I mostly do is um, switch back and forth. I teach a survey course on the Civil War era, but I you know I know some people teach their Civil War courses in a very focused way, pretty much from, you know, Fort Sumter to Appomattox, and I do more of a kind of, you know, from the Constitution to Reconstruction kind of Civil War course. So, so it's a, you know, takes a kind of broader angle. Uh, and then I also do a survey of American women's history. So those are the two lecture courses I do, and then, you know, some, some more kind of specialized seminars as well. And I, I do the uh, the Civil War uh, course, uh, as, as you do from a broader perspective. Actually, uh-huh. I tend to start in 1619. Uh, so, oh, okay. Uh, but <laughs> I, 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 I joke, when, when I start my course, I say, well, who knows where we should begin? We could start in 1619. And I think just so that I can make sure that I'll actually get it through to the end, I moved it up so that I started the Constitution. I think that's a good choice. On the other hand, I do have a... Uh, I've known people who teach the uh, the first half of the the survey, the the whole U.S. history survey, uh, where they get uh, from uh, pre-Columbian to uh, to Fort Sumter in about two weeks, and then it's all Civil War. Uh, well, uh, I, so. right. <laughs> well, now you're um, uh, you've written a number of things, but the book uh, that I have in front of me here, Gender and the Sectional Conflict, is. Uh, uh, based on lectures, and I, I, I enjoy books like that because they really uh, involve the author's thought uh, as, as much as uh, archival research. There, they often are more stimulating. Mm. Uh, if I were Stephen Colbert, I would say, "Why do you argue that gender caused the Civil War?" Knowing that you don't argue that at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but let me put you on the spot. Uh, why should we? I mean, the war—it's a war between North and South. What does gender have to do with it? Right. Well, I, I wouldn't say that gender caused the Civil War, but what I would say is, um, you know, I think what, one of the things that I've been interested in trying to do is, is understand motivations of both Confederate and Union soldiers and what drove those men to fight. And so, you know, like a lot of people, I picked up James McPherson's book for Causing Comrades, you know, and, and I was interested in this idea of ideology, 
you know, that, that Union soldiers and Confederate soldiers didn't simply fight for their buddies or, you know, immediate tangible concerns, but that there was some larger ideology. Well, it struck me, and I'll confess I'm not the first or only person to be struck by this, but that a, a, a very significant component of that ideology had to do with gender. In other words, it had to do with the way those soldiers understood their responsibilities as men, how they understood their responsibilities vis-a-vis their families, their homes, their children, uh, and that they phrased you know, their, their motivations and their, their reasons for fighting in ways that I think had, had a lot to do with gender. Well, you, no, you make the point that it's not an either-or situation. We don't have to say that political ideology had nothing to do with it. It's all culture and gender roles. Right. Right, no, that's absolutely true. And in fact, I, in a sense, I think you know, gender is a is a component of that ideology. It's not the only factor in that ideology. Um, I, I mean, I can just uh, just to kind of give you an example. You know, I, I, the I guess the one of the kind of fundamental points that I try to make is that Confederate soldiers, for example, talked about their cause in ways that really merged the whole notion of home family, country, you know, they use those phrases like, you know, we're going to fight for our wives, our children, our land, our principles, you know, and and they would bring those ideas together, whereas the impression I had, and certainly after reading Union soldiers' letters, that impression was only strengthened. Union soldiers talked about separating home from country, and they, in fact, would say, you know, what's most important right Yeah, I, I care about you, my wife, my children, my home, but what's most important right now is that I fight for my country, so that, so that they made a, a very sharp separation between the two, and they prioritized the nation over the home. Um, and my argument is that that reflected, it, it not only reflects gender, but it reflects very different understandings and practices related to gender uh, as they existed in the North and the South on the eve of the Civil War. Well, let's talk about that. The uh, you know, historians talk about the the cult of domesticity or the, the separate spheres of men and women that emerge uh, certainly in the middle class. Uh, you argue here that that's true in the North, but much less so, much less so in the South, and mm-hmm. uh, and that is reflected in how how Southern soldiers feel about their homes. Right, and 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 I think that's true. I think. Um, in many ways, I think that that idea, and I wouldn't say the language of the separate spheres or that cult of domesticity is absent from the South. I mean, anybody who's read any, you know, literature or the novels or, you know, anything that comes out of the South in the antebellum period knows that there's a kind of celebration of a feminine ideal uh, and, a, and a celebration of something, you know, domestic, so that it's not that that's absent completely from, from the South. But But I think what is absent is, that um, it's it's a, it's a different way of thinking about home and family, and I think that that idea of the separate spheres captures it. That what you had in an industrializing society like the North, you know, where more and more you had a tendency for men to leave the home or for men to actually, you know, see their primary point of reference lying outside the home. You know, maybe it was going to work or it was going to market or it was politics, business, you know, something that lay outside the home, whereas more and more the home was an autonomous sphere for women. Uh, and obviously that's not 100% true and it would not define the, the life or experiences of all northern families, but I think it was increasingly becoming a norm. And I think what you had in the South was much more of that, uh, that 
you know, when, when Confederates uh, talked about a home, well, a home was really a very kind of broadly construed entity that might have been a plantation, it might have been a farm, but it was a source of a person's livelihood. Uh, it was a place where, you know, crops were raised. It was a place where, uh, you know, the, the family drew its sustenance. Um, and I think what different historians, I think, have, have addressed this idea that there was I think Elizabeth Fox Genovese uses the phrase that, that the South was characterized by this kind of household economy uh, that kind of drew all these things together into something that people called a home, but it was really this combined household and plantation. So the, the woman in the Southern home has a, a large economic role. She helps run the plantation or mm-hmm. the family farm. Mm-hmm. The, the woman in the North has a, a moral role, a, a role in, in nurturing the, the family, but she doesn't make any money for the family. Well, you know, the the, the whole question of the, the economics is an interesting one because, you know, a lot of people have made the argument that in some ways the northern woman did play an economic role, but it was hidden and nobody acknowledged it, you know, so that, yeah. uh, in fact, if you didn't have the wife at home who did all the cooking and the cleaning, you might have to hire somebody who would do all those things. Or if you didn't have the wife at home who knew how to sew, you might have to actually go out and buy your clothes. So, you know, that, that she actually does play a very important economic role that's, that's hidden from view, uh, but that, you know, when her, her economic function was hidden, what, what replaced it, in a sense, was a kind of celebration of, oh, it was just, you know, so morally uplifting everything that she did that we couldn't possibly, you know, muck it up with something that was that made money. So, so I do think that there was an economic component to um, to what Northern women did in the home. Uh, the distinction that I would draw is, I think that Northern women had a, were given a kind of autonomous position, a, a kind of independence in terms of their sphere, which I think Southern women were not, because Southern women ultimately couldn't be. You know, even if it was their home, there was always a slave master, a plantation master. There was always a sense that there was that higher authority who really made the ultimate decisions in a southern home. And, and, the, and the northern woman, at least in terms of what the home looked like and uh, how the children were raised, uh, had authority in her own home. Right. We're going to take a short break here and come back and talk some more. Our guest today is Nina Silber author of Gender and the Sectional Conflict. We'll be right back with more of Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. By the end of 1862, in both North and South, some commentators accused women of lacking patriotism. Was that true? We'll ask our guest Nina Silber when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant... He was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, 
you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Nina Silber, author of Gender and the Sectional Conflict. In our first section, we talked about uh, how roles of men and women differed in the antebellum North and South, uh, how the role of the home was different, uh, how the sexes were separated to a larger extent in the North. Men went off to work, women stayed home, whereas that in the south on the family farm or the plantation, the home was the work site and everyone was in the same place. Um, Nina, I found this very interesting when you talked about in your book about how this affected the, the role of the men uh, as well as the women in terms of what it meant uh, to be a man in 19th century America uh, for a southern soldier, as, as you, you said a few minutes ago, it's very clear that he is fighting for home, for women, for family, for the country, for independence, for the South, all rolled into one. Mm -hmm. But the northern man is being manly, is doing what he believes he is supposed to do by telling his wife and children, I don't have time for you right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and yes, and I think that that poses certain problems, but at the same time, it's interesting, I think, because... um, in a sense, you know, that, that whole idea and that language of, of separate spheres made it easier for the northern soldier to say to his wife and children, I don't have time for you right now, I have to be someplace else, because there's already a kind of tradition that's been established that says the home is your sphere, the family is your sphere, you know, I have, my work takes me elsewhere right now, and well, right now my work takes me to the battlefield. Uh, so I think that there's almost a way in which that notion and that language of the separate spheres had already accustomed um, northern soldiers and their families to that to that idea. I mean, obviously, too, you know, it's not as if geography is not a factor in this at all. You know, the, the Confederates could say with a sense that, you know, a sense of accuracy, we're under attack, we're under invasion, we're defending our homeland against those who have come to invade us. And northerners could say and understand a, a very different geographical imperative that said, you know, we have to go someplace else and leave our own home sphere. Uh, but I think aside from the geography, I think the point that, that I was um, discussing before are relevant here, that, that there was a different sense of, you know, just how attached, how much, how much a man's identity was bound up in his place, with his place in the home, that it was different for southern men than it was for northern men. Now, this brings up an issue that I find challenging when trying to explain to undergraduates what both sides were fighting for. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the South, you have, as you just said, the, there's an invasion. There's a very clear sense we're fighting uh, because you're here, as, mm-hmm. as Shelby Foote told the memorable story once. Right. Um, the North is fighting for an abstraction, and, and I, I have no trouble getting 
students here in North Carolina, but but also in Indiana or Massachusetts, other places I've taught the course, uh, no trouble getting them to understand how a Southern soldier might see he was just defending his home, even if he had no immediate uh, uh, ownership of slaves, let's say. Right. But the Northerners are fighting for this abstraction for the Union. Right. Uh, a word we don't even use anymore in our political discourse. Uh, how how did that tie in with with this motivation of of, of, of home and, and separate spheres? Right. Well, you know, I think the um, well, for one, I would say what one thing that's interesting is is the way in which unionists, men and women, were forced to even think about an abstraction. I hope I'm not being too abstract when I say this, <laughs> but, but you know, you know what I mean that that that. Confederates almost got off the hook, I think, when it came to really having to think about, well, what is our national enterprise? Because if you constantly made reference back to, well, it's really about the home and the family and my land and like that, then you never really had to think, well, what is the nation about? Whereas I think you had a different thing at work with unionists. They they actually had to kind of give some meat to what that abstract thing called the union was. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, they, they, they certainly talk about principles related to the revolution. Uh, they talk about principles of, of liberty and freedom, especially as, as they embrace the cause of emancipation. Um, I, I actually do think in some ways that by 1860, Northerners, for Northerners, I think the whole nation state was less abstract than it was for Confederates. Um, and I think that because, you know, well, they have a, they have a stronger... Well, they pay taxes more than Southerners do. I mean, they have more of a sense that, you know, there is a government that provides services. Uh, there's more public schooling in the North than there is in the South. So they have some sense that the state is providing schools. They go to school. They probably encounter, you know, the symbols of patriotism, of flags, uh, whatnot, you know, maybe even to a greater extent than, than Southerners do in 1860. I, so I think that even right there, there's a there's a way in which, they could, they could think of that idea of a union uh, as something that they had a history with, some experience with. And, and on the same track, I, I, you could argue that the Northerners have more invested in their political system in the sense of participatory politics because mm-hmm. they have a vibrant two-party system. Mm-hmm. Uh, the South has a sort of a, a shadow of a two-party system, the Whigs and the Democrats, but... They cannot discuss the one issue that's on everybody's mind. Right. Uh, so they don't really have, in South Carolina, they don't even have two parties. Right. Uh, so, so Northerners really do sense that, that this experiment in democracy means something. Yes, yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I think that they, they could use that language and, and really give it some meaning. Now, another point that, that you tie in with that is that Northerners, Northern soldiers argue it, or, or write in these letters home when they're explaining why I, I can't come home now. Uh, that they're fighting for the future. Uh, the Southern soldiers fighting for the right now, get the, get the Yankees out today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Northerners use a lot of future language. Right, right. And they'll talk about um, the future welfare of their state, the future. That, that it, and I think that, that is also, that's part, too, of that sense of you know, giving more meat and more substance to what otherwise really does feel like an empty abstraction to say, you know, it, to see that this government is sustained, uh, to see that you know you and I and our children continue to have a government, I think that that's that's part of what they're 
you know, they're trying to articulate what that idea of, of a nation means. And, and as you point out, after the war, that becomes even more concrete in that the, the federal government takes over uh, the breadwinner function for, for many northern veterans. Well, right, actually, they do that during the war um, even, in yes. terms of the pension program. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, the, in 1862, yeah, I mean, I think that that's the, the United States Congress uh, implements a new uh, and expanded system of uh, pensions, which, in fact, in, in some ways, I think that the pension system, you know, it, well, their expanded system is that they regularize these payments uh, and they include... Uh, well, wives, and then I think subsequent legislation says that if there was a mother or a sister who was dependent on a soldier who, you know, is now incapacitated or who has died, uh, they will also receive a pension. Children will receive a pension. Um, and it's interesting, I think in some ways the, the pension program uh, is sort of like the federal government's way of rewarding Union soldiers for having prioritized the nation over the home. Right, it's the federal government sort of stepping in and saying, "Well, yes, you know, we're gonna." Partly, what they're saying is, "Yes, we're gonna make the that abstract thing called the nation real and tangible in the form of actual monetary payments to your family." Uh, and also, it's a way of saying, you know, the government now uh, sort of pledges to do its part to take care of the home, precisely because you made that sacrifice and said, "You know, I can't take care of the home right now because I have to go and save the nation." No, the so so both sides see the home as uh, central, but in these very different ways. Let me move forward uh, in what you've written here. When as I said in between the breaks, uh, there were commentators uh, between the segments, rather commentators who uh, said that patriotism was beginning to wane; that, that women were not uh, pulling their weight uh, in terms right. of patriotism uh, by mid-war. You make the point that uh, the very phrase women's patriotism is a contradiction in terms. What do you mean by that? Well, I think certainly going into the war, uh, people would not have known how to understand or even judge this notion of what women's patriotism was supposed to be. Because, you know, I think the, the established tradition was that women, how could women truly be, in, uh, truly be patriotic to, you know, their country, to their nation, when, in fact, their first and foremost allegiance was to their families. Uh, and so, you know, people talked about this idea that they really had a subordinated patriotism. Uh, so, so to actually say women's patriotism was to say, well, isn't their first allegiance really to their family? Can they really have, you know, this kind of allegiance? Could they, I think, you know, the, the real challenge was could they have a position of patriotism towards their country when their husbands didn't? You know, if they, could they take a different position from their family members on that? So, so I think that that was a kind of problematic formulation for a lot of people. Did you find that anywhere? I mean, we all know of families split uh, north and south, brothers going different ways or fathers and sons going different ways. I can't recall reading of husbands and wives separating over this. Uh, and, and I can't say that I have a lot of evidence. Uh, you know, I mean, I, there are certainly points where women are not as, <laughs> they're not as willing to make the commitment that their husbands are, uh, or they, you know, I certainly have evidence of northern women's letters where they might use the phrase, I'm not feeling quite as patriotic as you are right now, you know, which is sort of their way of saying, I wish you would come home now already. So, so they, they certainly, um, they use that phrase. I, I think the thing that was striking to me, and it wasn't so much that, that, um, 
you know, the husbands and wives parted ways on in terms of their patriotism. But one of the things that I was struck by, and I think this was an important transformation that happened during the Civil War, um, was the way the federal government, as it occupied the South, you know, they had this system of uh, loyalty oaths, you know, when they would occupy portions of the South and they would make the residents of an area take a loyalty oath, uh, you know, so that they could get some kind of assurance that the, that that region would be secure and that you know hopefully that they wouldn't be giving aid and comfort to confederate soldiers but what was striking to me was how over the course of the war union officials don't let southern women off the hook and they actually say well we need a, an oath of loyalty from women as well as from men and to me that suggested that something was changing in that whole idea that you know that question do women have patriotism well if you're going to make them take a loyalty oath, then the possibility exists that you can't just ask her husband to take a loyalty oath. And this would be the case even for married couples, even if there was you know, still a husband who was alive and present, that women separately would have to take their own loyalty oath. So then you were making the assumption right there that, well, maybe they would have a different position. Maybe I have to actually get the woman independently to give her loyalty and make a, a, a proclamation about her loyalty, uh, and I can't just assume that. And you point out that's very different from the, the era of the American Revolution where the law held exactly the woman was bound by her husband's uh, loyalty or non-loyalty. Right, right. Now, and that, I'm sorry, go ahead. Here we become uh, victims of the limitations of radio, but uh, on, on page 62, for listeners who have their copy of the book handy, okay, there's Okay, I illust- think I have my copy of the book. <laughs> <laughs> there's an illustration of uh, a statue by uh, John Rodney. Oh, yeah, I love that statue. I, actually, I'm sorry that I didn't wasn't able to get the statue. It's, it's an engraving that was, I think, in Harper's Weekly of the statue. I was trying to get a picture of the statue itself, but, yeah, the, the John Rogers taking the oath. It, it is wonderful. Uh, some listeners, you may be familiar with John Rogers' uh, piece, The Council of War, of, uh, Lincoln with Stanton and Grant. Uh, he, Rogers did a lot of groups of figures, and that was a wonderful one. Taking the oath uh, in, shows a Union soldier administering an oath to a uh, Confederate woman who is, has her hand on the Bible. She's going to follow this oath. She's taking it seriously, but she's looking away with a uh, mixed look of shame and uh, despair. She's uh, her, her little boy is clinging to her skirts. The barrel of rations is right there. She's doing this to feed her. She, she's putting family over, uh, right. Uh, right. She knows, over she cause. Knows she has to do this so she can get the food. Yes, uh, and and yet, as you point out, this statue not only sold uh, was popular in the South, but it was popular in the North. There's also a uh, an African American child, uh, clearly a former slave observing the scene will right. look as if to say uh, bottom rail on top now uh, yeah it's hard to say if it's if it's a bottom rail on top or isn't this a kind of well yeah it's it's a sort of isn't this an interesting uh juxtaposition of things i suppose you're right yeah well he's he's not gloating he's, no, the, the boy's no. not gloating over the misfortune of the perhaps his former mistress but it's almost a look of wonderment uh, right. that, that bottom rail is on top now. Right, right. Uh, not that he is, he's still dressed in rags and barefoot. Uh, he, he's not benefiting so much, but he's free. Right. Uh, and, and the transformation and, and the, the agency of the woman, that she now has to take this oath and make this choice between family and, and, and Confederate cause, it, it's a marvelous piece and, and really well chosen for this book. Yeah, uh, thank you. Well, the... 
it points out, as you say, that this woman is now responsible for her, her views or is being held responsible. Um, you see this in the North as well uh, with things like the Women's Loyal Leagues that, that, that spring up. Right. Uh, right. And one of the things that I, I do try to argue in this book is that in the course of the war itself, um, I would say Northern women, not so much Southern women, but Northern women are trying to claim their patriotism. Uh, and partly this comes in response to the fact, as I think you mentioned, that you know, midway into the war there are all of these attacks uh, on women's patriotism. And, and I found this more to be the case in the North than in the South, that you know, the periodicals are filled mid-war with why aren't women doing more, uh, they should be suffering more, they should be sacrificing more, uh, they seem to be removed from this whole conflict, you know, or they'll talk about women kind of giving support to the Copperhead conspiracy. Uh, and and it, w- I w- it was striking how much that uh, they were sort of under indictment. Uh, so, I mean, one is the question of why that would be the case, but I think in answer to the other question, I think, Northern women do uh, become, I think, very active in refuting those charges and trying to demonstrate the fact that uh, they're patriotic and they're actually patriotic to uh, not just their families but to ideals, that, they, that there's a certain set of national ideals uh, that have to do with the same things that men believed in, the traditions of democracy, the traditions from the revolution, uh, the ideals of liberty, um, you know, and especially those women who believed in emancipation made that very much a part of the national ideals that they believed in and that that, that was something that they were patriotic towards. So I think, you know, there, what, what you do see in the war is northern women kind of moving that discussion forward to say, yes, we, our patriotism should be taken seriously. Now, one of the accusations that they, the northern women don't sacrifice as much uh, uh, it, partly, they, they don't have to. I mean, they're, they're, they haven't been invaded. Right. Uh, the southern women the, the, are blockaded economically and and are, are being overrun. So, so they're forced to do without in a way that northern women are not. Right. And one of the arguments that northern women make, though, is simply being forced to do without should not be construed as a sign of patriotism. And I think that, you know, in a sense, what, what northern women are trying to deal with is, you know, it goes back to that whole abstraction problem that we talked about before. You know, how do you show your patriotism for a cause when it's been posed in these relatively abstract ways? Uh, that you can't simply say, well, look at me, I've, I've got no food left in my cupboard and, you know, I've ripped up my carpets and, you know, used them to help our soldiers. You know, I, I think the northern women are trying to make this argument that it's not simply that kind of your, your lack of comfort that should be taken as a sign of patriotism, but it should also be what your ideals and beliefs actually are. Well, that certainly makes sense. Uh, we'll take another short break here. We'll come back in just a minute, talk more with Nina Silber. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. It's a cliche that history is written by the winners. But if the success of the lost cause movement is any measure, it was the losers who wrote Civil War history for a hundred years. What role did Southern women play in that? 
movement. We'll talk about this when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Nina Silber, author of Gender and the Sectional Conflict. We've been talking about the differing roles of men and women uh, as they differed both men to women and uh, the North and the South, uh, the different roles of the home in the ideology of the two sections, the different roles women played during the war in terms of uh, motivating their, their men to fight or serving as motivation. Um, you know, one question that, that occurred to me was uh, the, the way women responded. We were talking in the last section about the, the South being the, the object of invasion so that uh, women had to uh, directly encounter northern armies and suffer more in some ways. Right. Um, uh, Jacqueline Campbell has argued that women who encountered Sherman's men in her research seem to be radicalized by the experience and, and become more resistant to uh, uh, to the North, more, more nationalistic uh, mm-hmm. as Confederates. But their men uh, at the front in Lee's army up in Virginia, be, their will to fight became weaker. Their, their mm. desertion rates became higher. Right. Um, that seems to tie in with what we're talking about here the, the, in terms of fighting for the home. Right, that... Um that I think increasingly, well, you know, it, 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 it's an interesting sort of twist, I think, on um, also the hypothesis advanced by Drew Faust, who argues in Mothers of Invention that, uh, well, she found that Confederate women sort of increasingly lost the will and uh, desire to see the war continue as it dragged on. Um, but, you know, I, I think, and, and I think Jacqueline Campbell's point is right, that a lot of this is going to, it's hard to generalize, and a lot of this is going to vary depending on the particular experiences those women have. But I think what is true is that with Confederate men going into this fight with this conviction and this sentiment that overall they were fighting for the preservation of their homes and the protection of their families, um, that it becomes harder to justify that as the war drags on and you see the kind of devastation that's being wrought at home and the suffering that families are enduring. Uh, so, in, you know, in a way, I think they're not, they're not equipped with 
a language or an ideology that lets them say, we've got to keep pushing on for this cause, because in effect what they've said all along is the cause is the home. And now Sherman's men are in the backyard. Exactly. Uh, Sherman was, was, was no fool. He knew what he was doing in terms of, of, of attacking the... The, 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 the home front. The, the social infrastructure, uh, as well as the physical one of the South. Uh, the the northern ideology it, it reminds me of, of almost a beer commercials uh, you know sorry dear I have to go uh, go with the boys now yeah um, it's very convenient actually uh, for men uh, to get you out of the house uh, <laughs> and you're fighting for their country so it's okay as, until you actually get to the fighting part where people get killed then it's, well, uh, right but but what is true is you know northern women plenty of northern women write to their husbands, union women write to their husbands, and they say, you know, come home, uh, we need you at home, you know, we're happy, I'm having another baby, or whatever it might be, you know, that, that there's a lot of problems that we're having and we really need you. But I feel, in many ways, union soldiers are better equipped to resist those pleas than southern sol- soldiers are, because they're able to say, well, we've said that this is a, a fight where we have to make this priority. And in, in many cases, the women have said, yes, we agree, you know, this, this has to be a priority right now. And so, but that understanding that, that fighting for this, this cause, this nation, is a priority over the home, I think, it, it, it prepares them to resist those kinds of pleas and demands that now it's time to come home. And, and that one has to almost sympathize with the, the southern soldiers who, who are now torn between uh, uh, doing what is right by their country and by their law uh, by their officers' orders, uh, at, at the risk of being executed for desertion, mm-hmm. uh, and what it means to be a real man, in their view, which is to protect the home and family. Right. Uh, now that those two are out of sync, they've got to choose between them, and it's a terrible choice. Right. And uh, no, I think that's exactly right. And 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 it certainly does have an effect on, it, well, desertion rates, but probably even more generally, in a way that you couldn't measure the morale of Confederate soldiers. Mm-hmm. Now. If Southern women then are, are objects of the, the war, that is, that, that's what the Southern soldiers are defending, um, Northern women are less uh, the objects and more agents of, uh, of, of telling their men what, uh, uh, of, of being patriotic, as you mm-hmm. said in the last section. Um, why is it that we have, after the war, this sudden not sudden, but uh, complete turnaround, so that by the 20th century, the northern woman is all but invisible, but everybody knows Scarlett O'Hara. Well, right. I know. This, is, this, is, this is often the st- my starting point, you know, when I give a talk somewhere, and I say, well, you know, everybody knows Scarlett O'Hara. And, and I also, I tell the story, you know, even at Boston University, where I teach, the, um, the, the mascot for the sports teams is named Rhett. And, <laughs> and the reason he's named Rhett is because no one loves Scarlet and Scarlet is the BU color. No one loves Scarlet more than Red, you know. And so I sort of throw up my uh, hand and say, you know, Scarlet O'Hara, she's everywhere. <laughs> you don't have to be in South Carolina. You could even be at Boston University. Wow. Uh, but but I think that it's true that um, that there's a way in which the the Northern woman becomes invisible, uh, and and I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, some of it has to do with who takes the the helm. You know, who, who takes the lead in the whole process of war memorialization? Well, what, one of the interesting 
distinctions between North and South is that uh, as far as union memorialization is concerned, the federal government takes charge. The federal government establishes cemeteries. The federal government uh, pays homage to fallen Union soldiers. Uh, the federal government does not create Confederate cemeteries, and the, Confeder- and the federal government does not pay homage to fallen Confederate soldiers. So, so what you actually have, I think, is an interesting dynamic where Southern white women step in and fill a vacuum um, that the federal government is occupying in the North so that they become, in fact, very prominent in the memorialization efforts. Uh, They're, you know, spearheading the efforts to create cemeteries, to move bodies, uh, to create monuments and memorials for fallen soldiers. Uh, And sometimes, too, I think it's convenient for uh, the Confederate memorial movement to make women more prominent in that process because it's a way of saying, and this is especially true during Reconstruction when the South is under federal occupation, uh, it's a way of saying we're not saying anything political by remembering our soldiers because these are women who are doing it. I mean, it's sort of a wink-wink, you know. (laughs) We're not being political, but I think it it becomes a way of saying this is not not a political movement by any means. It's purely sentimental, and, and what better evidence than the fact that, you know, this is being spearheaded by women. Whenever I want to get a a fight going uh, uh, in class, so to speak, I will talk about driving up to D.C. And you drive by, say, Fort A.P. Hill on Long I-95 in Virginia. Uh Uh So I ask the students, you know, will there ever be a Fort Irwin Rommel uh, in Virginia Uh or a Fort Osama bin Laden in Virginia? Uh And then they get mad because I've compared Confederates to, uh, you know, terrorists or Nazis. But that, that of course, is, is a... You know, just a provocative argument, but the idea is that A.P. Hill did attempt to overthrow the government of the United States, uh, did attempt to defeat and killed a lot of its uh, uh, soldiers, uh, as these other people did, yet we memorialize today Confederates without any difficulty. Right. Well, with, with, I should say not without any difficulty, but... Um, Some people raise objections. They, they, yet it is women, women are able to... to it sort of comes in clinging to the skirts of women, being protected by the, uh, uh, the, 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 the not the separate sphere so much, but uh, uh, the pedestal uh, on, on which women are put. Uh, they can't be criticized if they wish to mm-hmm. pay homage to their dead. Uh, the, the, the lost cause, uh, well, you make the argument that the lost cause is built on this, this protection of the home that we've been talking about now. Uh, by the right. late 19th century, the lost cause is seen as the Confederates defending their home, uh, and everybody likes home, uh, north and south. Home is a neutral, positive concept. Right, that's exactly right. And and, and so I think, you know, what, and it, it, what's interesting is that there's a way in which that lost cause celebration can, with, you know, a great degree of accuracy, say, Confederate soldiers were fighting for home. Well, when Confederate soldiers in 1860 said home, that was a little bit of a euphemism, too, because home was not just this, you know, domestic residence. It also, in many cases, included plantation or included farms. In some cases, certainly, it included slaves. Um, so, so they used that word home. And then in the late 19th century, it was a euphemism again uh, to say home because now they were it had those connotations, as you say, of, you know, home sweet home and everybody loves the home and, well, aren't we just talking about, you know, 
a simple home that everybody lives in. So I think they could very much tie the idea of the lost cause to the idea of home and, and make it seem very neutral that way. And, and then having the United Daughters of the Confederacy lead the uh, commemoration movement uh, just furthers the attachment to home. The women are the, the home people. Right. It's only natural that a movement to remember this fight for the home be led by women. Exactly. Now, in, in the North, in contrast, you don't see any, uh, to speak of, any monuments to Northern women or any active movement by Northern women to, to build monuments. Uh, I guess the government's already doing that. Uh, but the men themselves build monuments. Uh, regiments get together, brigades get together and, and put monuments to themselves on battlefields. Oh, yeah. But, men, but women don't do that. Why not? Why don't, why don't Union women do that? Why don't Northern yes, women do that? exactly. Well, you know, I mean, part of the problem is I think that they don't, they don't get established in any kind of tradition where they do that. You know, I think right from the get-go, as soon as the war concludes, Southern women become drawn into a history and a tradition of doing that. And as I mentioned, I think in the North or among Unionists, the federal government kind of occupies a central position of doing that and kind of pushes, if there was any impulse on women's part to do that, they sort of get pushed aside. Uh, There are, you know, I should say northern women who are certainly interested in memorialization, Uh, you know, so you do have a kind of equivalent to the United Daughters of the Confederacy in the north, and it's called the Women's Relief Corps, which is the ladies' auxiliary of the Grand Army of the Republic. Uh, and they're actually, they're a really large organization. There's a lot of chapters. There's black women, white women, uh, very well-organized operation. Interestingly, when I looked at their records, I found that they, they didn't spend a lot of time um, raising money for monuments or, or doing that kind of work. I think they, um, they, they thought that whatever money they raised, they should give back to union veterans. They, 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 they actually saw themselves in some ways more as a kind of social service organization for poor union families and orphans and trying to distribute money that way. Uh, they were less interested in, in spending their money on monuments. And actually they were also, in some ways, more, they, they began, I think, to get more interested in other political causes. Uh, you know, how do we inculcate patriotism and loyalty to new immigrants and that sort of thing. So they, they actually kind of so I guess I would say the, the main organization that existed in the North that might have actually done that work began striking out in a very different kind of direction. I suppose it makes sense also that they wouldn't feel maybe the same need to, to monumentalize their cause because there's no need to vindicate the cause. The cause won. Well, right. Uh, so so they, they can skip that phase altogether. But that's interesting that they, they've spent money on relief. One would think that the, the impoverished Confederacy would need even more relief for their soldiers. Well, it's true. And, and I think that maybe part of the problem was a kind of social class disconnect. I, I, you know, from what I can tell, the, um, the United Daughters of the Confederacy tended to be women more of means, more elite. Maybe they were sort of not even aware of how much, how much need and how much poverty there might have been among Confederate fa- or ex-Confederate families. Uh, and the w- Women's Relief Corps, I think, was much more kind of rooted in lower middle class, working class communities. Uh, they seemed to actually have been more in touch with what the economic needs were. So the, the the UDC, to some extent, fits the stereotype of the, the wealthy Southern belle uh, or Southern woman post-war uh, able to indulge this. 
Well, I think to some extent, yeah. Unfortunately, I hear the music playing, which says we are at the end of our hour. Always comes faster than than I would hope. Can I say uh, one thing? Because I think I misidentified do. my father's book. I called it the Civil War Songbook, and it really is Songs of the Civil War. So if anybody was going out there to look for it, it's, it's Songs of the Civil War. I just want to make sure I get the title of his Songs book Songs of right. the Civil War. And, and the first name was is Irwin? Irwin Silber, right. Irwin Silber. Yeah. Uh, the book we talked about today by our guest Nina Silber was Gender and the Sectional Conflict. Uh, it is a uh, slim but very interesting and thought-provoking volume, highly recommended to listeners of the show. Uh, Nina, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk.